Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. We're back in John chapter 17. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. John 17 will read... The chapter again, but we'll be focused on verses 6 and following. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give you eternal life. He may give eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours." And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled." But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has no has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me 
may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Let me pray. Father, we pray as we look into this, your scripture, that you would bless us. Bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we return to what has come to be known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. After speaking with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, this prayer is made. He prays. It's the last concerted uh, thing he, he does with his disciples before, before he dies. He, um, last time we focused on the, the first section of the prayer and the extraordinary fact that Jesus carries his humanity to the position of glory he had with the Father before the world was. The second section of this prayer now that we're in is focused on the 12 men, minus one, that followed Jesus and would be uh, sent out into the world to preach the gospel in the days following Christ's death and resurrection. So it's focused on the apostles. Jesus prays for these specific men. Verse 6, he prays, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. So these 12 men minus one were those men whom God the Father gave to the Son out of the world. Uh, What a wonderful description of these men. The choice of these men reaches not just back to the three previous years when they you know, heeded Christ's call to follow them, to follow him. Rather, it it goes way back into the recesses of history, even before history. They were chosen by the Father before time, given to the Son in time. What is true of those apostles is actually true of all believers. You know that, right? Right? They are elected by God before all time and redeemed by Jesus in time. Ephesians 1, 3-7 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. So you heard it there, chosen in him before the very foundation of the world. Sort of mind-boggling, right? Chosen by the Father before time, given to the Son to be redeemed in time. Now look at the language of the second half of the verse. Jesus prays for these men. Verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. They were yours 
and you gave them to me. These 12 minus 1, as with any true believer, were chosen by the Father before time and then given to the Son in time. Ryle says this about that glorious reality. He says, believers are given to Christ by the Father according to an everlasting covenant made and sealed long before they were born and taken out from the world by the calling of the Spirit in due time. They are the Father's peculiar property as well as the property of the Son. They were of the world and no wise better than others. They're calling an election out of the world to be Christ's people and not any foreseen merit of their own is the real secret foundation of their character, he says. Now, I want to go back to something he says there about property. Property. Not so many people, so many Christians, perhaps you, right, hate the thought of being somebody else's property. We resent our employers, right, owning our time. It's no longer our time. We sign that contract. We resent them, even though we committed to it. Because they're cutting into our freedom. I'm not any man's property. I'm a free man, right? We can even resent this kind of language from the Son of God because it takes away our supposed autonomy, right? We, we think that being the possession of the Father is an attack on love because love must be freely given, you know, freely given to God or it's not love, right? Well, what do we say to that? The fact of the matter is that if you were not the Father's possession and were not given to the Son, you would never freely choose to follow Christ. Spiritually dead men don't, don't choose Christ ever. Would you rather have your autonomy and be locked into hell than accept the truth that the Almighty God has elected to save sinners out of the world for all eternity? What would you rather have? Some who have inflated sense of their own autonomy and pride would rather have the freedom to choose. Those apostles, though, here, by this prayer, were the Father's possession. There is nothing else they could ever do than be these apostles to the Lord Jesus Christ. God possessed them, and he gave them to his son, right? And then they became the son's possession. Later, verse 9, Jesus prays, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. It's all the language of possession, right? People being possessed by somebody else. Not potential possession, right? Like they could be gods, but actual possession owned by God. Jesus is praying for those whom the Father has given him. You want to be 
God's possession as these apostles are. Right? You want to be God's possession. Right? Coming to understand your salvation in Christ is coming to realize that you are not your own. That's really what it is, right? That, that you are not your own, that you are not some independent blob that, that, that has some sort of autonomous will outside of Almighty God, right? You are not your own, and what a glorious thought that is. You are not your own, for you've been bought with a price. What price? The blood of the Son of God. The blood of the crucified Lord Jesus Christ shed for you in time because the Father possessed you before time. The apostles who went out into the world had no choice but to follow Christ, having been appointed to serve Him and having been appointed to eternal life. As they now stand in the presence of God, do you think Do you think they're objecting because it did not depend on their choice, but on the infallible choice of God? Do you think they're like, man, what a bummer, this this paradise. I wish I had chosen it freely. No, they see their slavery to God as the greatest gain they ever had in their lives. Their slavery to God was, was, is the cause of all their joy. Right? We, we buck against, against being the possession of others. And there might be good reason to because, because you can have an awful pastor. You can have an awful elder. You can have an awful boss. You can have an awful dean. Right? And, and it can be terrible, but, but having the Lord Jesus Christ as your master, the one who cast the stars into heaven, who shed his blood to redeem you, who made you alive when you were dead, I mean, there's nothing better than that. There's nothing better than that. Lock me into that kind of slavery, please, right? Lock me into the slavery of the Almighty God who can do no wrong, who never sins, and who is love. Lock me into that. That's what I want. And indeed, that is what has happened, and that is the course of history, right? So, they see the apostles who have died and gone into the presence of God see their slavery to God as the greatest gain that they ever had in this life. So that's the first thing from this, this prayer. The apostles were God's possession. And then they went out and preached about the salvation they had been given by grace. Next, we notice that Jesus speaks a lot in this prayer about his word, right? The word of God. He keeps coming back to the word and the position of the word and what the word is doing and their orientation toward the word. The word is that which was given to Jesus and that which Jesus then handed off to the apostles. 
And it was written for us, and it is what I'm preaching from right now. Right? That it, it has come down to us. And so the church in all ages will be hooked to this word. And Jesus is, is, is here uh, getting his apostles to understand the importance of that. Right? In verse 6, Jesus says that the apostles have kept your word. The apostles have kept the Father's word. Now, verse 6 is, is pretty packed. It tells us what Jesus did, what the Father did, and what the apostles did. Jesus manifested the Father's name to the apostles. The Father gave these men to Jesus, and the apostles kept the Father's word. And here's what Ryle says. He says, here our Lord continues the description of his disciples and names things about them which may be seen by men as well as God. He says they have kept or observed or attended to the word of the gospel which you did send by me. While others would not attend to or keep that word, these 11 men had hearing ears and attentive hearts and diligently obeyed your message. Sort of paraphrasing the passage. And then Ryle throws in this short reflection. He says this, and this is really all I've got this morning. Practical obedience is the first great test of genuine discipleship. Right? Does that make sense? Practical obedience is the first great test of genuine discipleship. Our response to God's word is the great test of whether or not we are worshipers of Jesus. Period. How do you respond to the word of God? The apostles, Jesus says, have kept the word. Now remember, they have resonating through their brains what Jesus had just preached to them. Remember chapters 13 through 16, are, it's one big sermon before the prayer in chapter 17, and they've just heard Jesus say this, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's been in this sermon right before he ends with prayer. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Who are those who love Jesus? Who are those who are disciples? Those who keep the word, those who obey Jesus' commandments. Now, let's take a step back. Notice in our passage this morning that the the word is mentioned a few other times. There is something of a progression here which seems to describe the, the, um, the statement in verse 6 that the apostles have kept the word. Right? Verse 7, and the first part of verse 8, the Father gave his words to Jesus. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. Right? So they understand that what, God, what Jesus has given has come from the Father. Verse 8, second half, the words given to the Son by the Father are given by the Son to the apostles. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. Verse 8, again, these words were received by the apostles, and they received them, it says. Verse 8, again, these words were not only received, but understood. 
From these words, they understood who Jesus was. It says, Jesus says, they truly understood that I came forth from you. They're getting some doctrinal content. They understand that Jesus is God and he came from the Father, right? And then verse 8 concludes, and they believed that you sent me. The Son is doing the work of the Father. He's on a mission that the Father has sent him on. The word goes from the Father to the Son to his apostles who do a bunch of things. They receive it, they understand it, they believe it, they keep those words, these teachings, those glorious teachings from the very mouth of God. So basically what we see in this passage is how the apostles relate to the word of God. The apostles were given the word of God. They received the word of God. They understood the word of God They believed the Word of God, and they kept the Word of God. And there's a progression there, okay? But let's think of each of those. The apostles were given the Word of God by Jesus. The Word is required. It is the only thing powerful enough to bring to life a dead heart. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing. As far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Other, in other words, no other words can do that. Certainly not the words of another man. Luther said, a man's word is a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes, but the word of God is greater than heaven and earth, yea, greater than death and hell, for it forms part of the power of God and endures everlastingly. Right? The word of a man is just, it's just, it's scented nothingness, you know, from bad breath. The Apostle Peter put it this way about the Word of God, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. It's active. It's sharp, right? And so the apostles were given that Word. And then the apostles received that Word. Remember this from back in John chapter 6. John 6.66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? And then what does he say? You have words of eternal life. You have words of eternal life. Where where should we go? We want to receive this. We want this. You've got the words of eternal life. We want that. They knew what Jesus had and they received those words. And remember what the scriptures say about the, the Thessalonian Christians. What does it say about their orientation word? For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Again, it's powerful. And then the apostles understood the word of God. The apostles were given an understanding of this word through the work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so... 
the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. Right? And so they, they, they are given understanding of this word that they, they received by the Spirit. And then the apostles believed in the word of God. Right? They could have, they could have, um, they could have been given, received, understood the word of God in an intellectual sense, and then stopped short of believing in the word of God. Right? That happens a lot. But the apostles believed the word of God. In other words, the truth of God's word moved from their heads to their hearts and then eventually to their wills. They had not simply understood God's word intellectually, but they believed the word of God. Believed it. They took the word of God as God's truth. They didn't make diagrams of Jesus' sentences in the original languages and then proclaim that they knew God's word, right? They made joyful songs about Jesus' sentences. And the result of all that, being given the word, receiving the word, understanding the word, believing the word, was keeping the word. They kept the word. Which leads me back to that statement of Ryle. Practical obedience is the first great test of genuine discipleship. The cost of discipleship is following the Lord Jesus Christ costing you anything at the moment, right? In your household, having to say no, having to say yes, having to do this, having to do that because your conscience is bound to the word of God. Does, does following the word of God, does following Jesus Christ cost you anything right now, Right? The true Christian is the is uh, the true follower of Christ is the one who gets all the way to that last stage, right? Not stopping and hanging out before that. The true follower of Christ understands exactly what Jesus means when he says, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." The true disciple understands that his love toward Jesus is to be worked out in his obedience, in his keeping his commands. Head to heart, to will. If that, that's a terrible description of will, but I think you get the drift. Imagine if someone thought it was enough just to be given Jesus' words. That's like the sacramentalist position, right? You just got to be around the Word of God, and you've got, it, you've got enough. You just be around the rituals, around the smells, you know, around the table, just be in proximity to the Word, you know. Um, I mean, it, it'd almost be the, this, and this is probably a fairly common thought, that having a Bible in your home is what makes you a Christian. Just having a Bible, an actual Bible, sitting at home collecting dust, right? That's a disciple of Christ. That's not a disciple of uh, Muhammad, they got a Bible sitting on their counter. Imagine if someone thought loving Jesus was just receiving Jesus' words. 
That's a, that's a little bit more than being given something, right? You, you accept them, you receive them. Um, you don't just have a Bible at home, but from time to time you read it and you think that it contains quite a bit of truth. There's quite a bit of truth in there, quite a bit, you know? And, and that supposed respect for God's Word is what makes you a Christian. It, it, that's what makes you a disciple of Christ. Have we, have we been that person? Perhaps. Imagine if someone thought loving Jesus was not only being given and receiving Jesus' words, but also some level of, some level of understanding of those, those scriptures. You don't just have a Bible at home. You read it from time to time, but not only that, but you study it. You really study it. And you can talk about what scripture says about prophecy and the speaking of tongues and sex, and husbands and wives, and worship, and sacrifices, right? And you can do that quite well, and that understanding, you say, is what makes you a Christian. That makes you a follower of Christ. Well, imagine if someone thought loving Jesus was not only being given, and receiving, and understanding Jesus' words, but also believing those scriptures, and now we're, we're like, okay, now we're getting somewhere, right? You don't just have a Bible at home and read it from time to time, but you understand much of it and, and, and you study it and you even say you believe it. You, you believe what it says about Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he rose from the dead, that heaven and hell are real places, right, in space and time. Is that the fullness of the Christian's relationship to the word? No, that's not quite it, right? You can believe the Word of God till the cows come home, but if it stops there, it is not enough. In John 8, Jesus is speaking with a crowd of Jewish men and women. The Pharisees have been testing Jesus, and Jesus has been passing the tests. Then we read this, John 8, 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, Do you remember at all what he said to those believing Jews that believed in him? He said, well, he didn't say that. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Right? So they believed and, that, and then he said, okay, yeah, but here's this. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. That statement, if you continue in my word, means that our relationship with the word is not simply one where at one point in time we came to believe some eternal truths about God, but it is one that is a living relationship, an ongoing, alive, you know, fruit-making relationship with Almighty God. 
We must believe and continue in the word. The disciple of Christ, as were these 11 apostles, are those who keep the word. They don't just use their ears and eyes and minds and even hearts in knowing God's word, but it goes even as far as their wills, the desire to obey God's word. Does your relationship to God's word stop before the last stage? It may not always do that, but here's the temptation. You're happy to obey the things that are nice to obey. But what about the things that aren't so nice to obey? Are you willing to obey even those verses? Like, do not commit adultery. Like, don't covet. Oh, kills me every time. Verse kills me every time. All right? Does your relationship to God's word stop before the last stage? Does it stop before obedience? Perhaps you're content with only having access to God's word. Perhaps you're content with only hearing or reading God's word, right? Or you're content with with some sort of intellectual understanding of God's word. You can hobnob with, with other people at church, right? Perhaps you're even content with your belief in God's word. But I tell you, the deep joy of the true disciple of Christ is more than that. It is It is all of those things, we must be given the word, receive the word, right? Understand the word, believe the word, but the true joy of the disciple is doing the word of Christ, doing it, even when it's painful, especially when it's painful. Letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Is that why you read God's Word, so you might find out what pleases God? Do you want to find out what pleases God, and you're like, man, I'm going to, make my, I'm going to please my daddy. I'm going to please my father. I'm going to do exactly what he asked me to, and it's going to be terrible in my flesh, but I'm going to have the satisfaction of knowing that he's asked me to do it, and I'm going to attempt it, though I might really stink at it. <laughs> I'm going to try. Do you read God's word so that you might find out how to walk in a manner that glorifies his son, so that you might love him by obeying his commandments? Now, some of you have never really approached God's word that way. Some of you know what the word says, but just simply don't think that there will be any joy in obedience. I know what that's like. Do you remember these verses? To one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. I truly pray that some of you younger Christians, some of you covenant children, come to understand this. Children, the proof of your faith is not being around the Word of God. It's not being around the church. It's not even in your actual study It's in your response to the Word of God. It is not in intellectually convincing yourself that, well, I'd obey, you know, if I had to. 
right? I'll obey that down the road. That's, we, we negotiate our, our obedience. But if it's in the Word of God and God has said it and God is watching us to see if we want to live in a way that pleases Him, then we would be like, okay, God help me. I want to obey. I want to do this. Some of us have just not even ever tried to obey God's word because we haven't yet broken up with our flesh that we love so much. We just always like obey our desires we, because those are immediate. We can get a little bit of satisfaction out of them and so we go after those and we're always willing to say yes to those assuming God does not see. You just assume there will be no profit in obeying God's word, no joy, no contentment, no dissatisfaction in obeying the commands of God because God is just a cruel taskmaster. Even though Jesus has just said, like, follow me and I'll make your joy full. That's what Jesus has just said in the sermon before this prayer. You reason, children, that there's no benefit to obeying your parents. There's no immediate benefit to obeying your parents, even though Scripture promises something to you if you do. You know what it promises you? Long life. You want to get cut down when you're 22? Disobey your parents. I mean, is that too harsh of an application? I mean, is, is that really what that passage means? Fathers, you, you see, you've, you've determined you have no benefit in leading your family spiritually, even though Scripture says that your prayers will be inhibited if you don't. Your prayers will be inhibited. God will stop listening to you. Right? There's no benefit in keeping vows even when it hurts, even though God says that He loves such faithfulness. He loves when we keep His vows. Have you convinced yourself that keeping God's Word is onerous? That the yoke of Christ is simply too burdensome. Well, remember these words from the Apostle John's first letter. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. He's not, and that's not a promotion of sinless perfection, right? Because the previous chapter is like, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you, right? That's not what he's saying. But there's a, a concerted desire to obey God. Have you convinced yourself of the lie that what John the Apostle writes is some kind of legalism that is opposed to the gospel of grace? Have you convinced yourself that the life lived in obedience to your desires is better than the life lived in obedience to God, that it's going to yield more contentment in the long run and more satisfaction, more respect from other godless men, right? And that's what you want. Who has a hold of your will? Who has a hold of your will? 
your desires, or the Word of God? Who do you obey? Who's your master? Well, I'm going to leave off there. We didn't get close to the end of this prayer. It's too dense, as you might expect. But what I hope is I hope that each of you will examine yourself in this. And that we will get into the habit of searching scriptures and having other people give us their scriptural wisdom and say, look, I'm struggling with this. What does God's word tell me to do? And how in the world am I going to obey this? And I'm going to be like, I don't know. You got to pray and fight and pray and fight. But know that it will please the Lord if you do mortify this sin and go after him. Let's pray and ask the Lord to do it. Father, we ask that you would help us, Father, to be not merely those who look into the word, but doers of the word. That it would arise out of genuine love for you, genuine love for holiness, genuine love to be conformed to Jesus and all his righteousness. And so, Father, I pray that we would pursue our sanctification, that we would obey the word, that our lives would be continuously, every day, oriented around your word, that it would be popping up everywhere and binding our consciences. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.